Everybody listen in. Sam <laughs> is about to set fire to his relationship. No, it was I'm gonna manager. I'm gonna give him some love, honestly, because he uh, he very. I remember I just said like, hey, I wouldn't mind connecting to get your thoughts uh, in general, and we connected at the old sleep train Arco, whatever you want to call it, in Sacramento when the thunder rolled through town, and we sit in the stands to to talk about my career, which was weird because normally that's not what you talk to GMs about. And he very candidly was like, Sam, I think you're pretty good at what you do. And and I'll be honest with you, like you just that's just not a job for you. Like you just he very directly steered me away from it, which I appreciated and obviously, you know, went down some other roads that, that worked out, but there was a oh, short you, moment in you, time when man, uh, you've got a you've got a redemption arc, man. I, I remember I have this memory of you LA All Star game, maybe it was twenty ten. Uh, one of those years, yeah, that was way back. Yeah, and you were hustling, man. Like you were unaffiliated. You had a. You gave me your business card, which looked like you had made by hand. <laughs> and I was a nobody, so I uh, knew that you were that you, that you were really scrapping because I was absolutely nobody. So I was I was very confused. Well, but I remember yeah. thinking, this guy is a fighter, man. Like this, you know, fan house might have gone under, but this guy. This guy's really scrapping, and then you have this great redemption arc to being one of the main NBA reporters. Uh, it's pretty great. I, I know you're gonna try to you're gonna try to slough it off. You're gonna try to be bashful about it, but um, it's it's damn damn impressive. Man. I appreciate it, brother. No, that that that's that's a fond memory. I think you know, we all have those where it's like you you don't know what's gonna come next. You don't know the outcome, but when you look back, you do feel pretty good about the way you fought. And so that one, that was like, I don't know if I ever told you this story. That was literally the weekend where Fan House, we already knew that we were going to be out unofficially, but they did this conference call with everybody on, you know, the entire company. So you got 300-ish writers on the line who are being told that they're out of work, right? And when that call happened, I'm in a rental car, going to LA for All-Star Weekend because to oh. their to their credit they still agreed to pay for All-Star Weekend and like any sane person what am I thinking like well sure I'm going to give you a few stories but I'm going to be out there trying to figure out my next step so yeah. as I'm driving down to LA uh going over the grapevine the, the timing could not have been worse I I was I time-wise I wanted to get there I didn't want to stop the car and pull over and listen to the call especially cuz it's like you're telling me I'm out of work I don't I don't want to be inconvenienced you're already doing that enough so as we're going the uh the signal kept cutting out on the call and the call kept dropping so then as i was driving i would call back in and it was really annoying but the embarrassing part is i thought that it was just annoying for me what i later learned is that every single time that i called back into the call which was legitimately like 15 times all 300 people would hear Sam Amick has re-entered the call. <laughs> so, like at their worst moments career-wise, I was in an unnecessary thorn in their side. But yeah, you yeah. If, if if somebody if they all hear your name now, it's uh, Pavlovian and it sends them into PTSD. Exactly, hundred percent. So, yeah, yeah well, but that know. weekend was like then I got these business cards and I'm out hustling NBAconfidential.com. So. Well, listen, brother, uh, perfect segue is how far we both have come. Um, <laughs> I'm excited to have you on. And, Andrew, we're going to do an unorthodox tip-off to the pod this week. The great Ethan Strauss 
on the line from The Athletic, Ethan Sherwood-Strauss, longtime friend, longtime colleague, author of The Victory Machine, The Making and Unmaking of the Warriors Dynasty. Ethan, better late than never. What's up, brother? <laughs> I'm so happy to be here, man. Thanks for the intro. Yeah, no, we've we've been talking for weeks about having you on the Tampering Pod, and and uh, I told you I'm, I'm trying in my older age, Ethan, to be direct with people and not basically bullshit them. And my thing was like, Ethan, I gotta I gotta finish the book before we have you on the pod. <laughs> I, like, dude, yeah. I I appreciate that because let me say something because I've been doing a bunch of interviews, kind of slowed down because I you know I did the push for the promo. But the interviews where people haven't read the book are so much worse. Sure. <laughs> than the, than the interviews sure. where they have. Because they start asking questions. They start going, uh, so what's the book about? And you're just like, oh, my God. Like, <laughs> right. Bad, right. Bad enough, i got to write the thing. i got to now create a Cliff Notes version for you, too. Right. Like, right. Really? That's human nature. That's like when you do – I'll do radio hits every once in a while where – They'll they'll bring you on, and this has happened recently, where they're like, "Hey, we're here with Sam Amick from USA Today and the Athletic," and I'm like, "No, that's why don't you look at the bio? What are you doing? You know?" And then you're in a bad mood for the whole interview. So I I get it. Um, the 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 programming tweak that I am going to make, and I and I know for a fact that you and I will have no problem uh, adjusting on the fly, is I want to try to find a way to to dive into the book, but in the context of what's happening in the league right now, there's plenty of threads. Yeah that we could pull at between the two. Um, so on the news front, for any listeners who have been focused on, you know, a lot of the more meaningful things in our country right now, but but these intersect. NBA players on Friday held a call, a, a conference call led by the Brooklyn Nets' Kyrie Irving, in which views were basically shared, concerns uh, mostly about the Black Lives Matter movement and the idea that is growing in some circles that – restarting the NBA season in Orlando would be a deterrent or kind of a, a momentum killer on that front. Uh, and and so um, I wrote Friday, Ethan, as you know, because I saw that you very nicely retweeted it, a column about LeBron James and the fact that LeBron still wants to play, uh, thinks that you can make a difference with that platform in Orlando, having the ESPN microphone, TNT, ABC, and, and talk about – the issues that matter most to them and their communities. Other guys think that it's just not a time to play sports. Um, you know, uh, let's start there. And, and you know, the shameless plug that is well-deserved, because I really did enjoy the book, is that, first of all, it's not just a Warriors book. It's an NBA book. And, and I love, you're one of the best in the business at pulling the curtain back a little farther than the rest of us are comfortable pulling it. You specifically over the years have had no problem, you know, putting the spotlight on the fact that agents control a lot of the narratives within this league and that a lot of us who sometimes lean on them for information are not as willing to, to, you know, kind of out that component. There's a lot of that in the book. It's, it's nitty gritty on the NBA and how it truly functions and the egos and the power and the levels. Um, and so it it goes well beyond the warriors. Um, so job well done and, and we'll get into that deeper, but give me your, your quick, you know, uh, radio Ethan Strauss hot take on what is <laughs> <laughs> what's happening in the, in the league right now. Where are we headed here? Um, I guess my first, just first impression of it, and I can't answer the question about what playing versus not playing does to advance certain political causes. I, that's not something I can really predict. It's not something I really know. I guess my first hot take is the NBA might have missed its window. That um, maybe you're on the side of 
the money will speak for itself. And you mentioned in the article that you wrote that there is $900 million of TV money at stake, perhaps at least, because who knows how that impacts some of the regional money. It might even be more than that. So if you're on the side of money will speak, they'll get it done, they'll figure it out. Yeah, maybe. But I look at it as a situation where, and I say this more as an observation than a criticism, because God knows I would not want to be the commissioner of the NBA right now through this pandemic, through the social upheaval. Um, but I remember in a Ramona article, uh, it was mentioned that Adam Silver looks to David Stern's advice about how you should never make a decision until you absolutely have to make it because most of the problems go away anyway. And I wonder if that philosophy, which is perhaps a good one in the majority of situations the commissioner must tackle, did not serve him well right here, did not serve the NBA well right here. That that dragging their feet, that being careful, that being slow created a dynamic where now suddenly other events are occurring that make it harder to pull off the resumption of the season. And additionally, there might be a huge spike coming right. following all of these protests and people gathering out in the world. So I just look at it as the NBA might have missed its window that by going slower, taking their time, you know, a few things happen, not only the aforementioned aspects, but also there's a loss of legitimacy. It feels less like a continuation of the season and it feels more like something else that bears absolutely no relation to it. So I'm still like a lot of other people in wait and see mode. But I try to look ahead and not look at yesterday's news. I try to look at, OK, well, this is where the NBA is at now. They have substantial obstacles. And that's before we get a potential spike. If you right. think that we're going to get a huge spike in diseases, diseases, that sounds ridiculous, in in uh, infections. Sure. Um, if you think that's going to happen, just a little shift in the news has this huge domino effect and everything else. And it's hard to see how they're going to pull it off. If that happens, despite everything they've done to try to secure the bubble. So, yeah, that's my that's my view of it, that for understandable reasons, the NBA might have missed their window. Well, and I think to add on to that thought um, on the medical front, one thing that is not envious at all that Adam and his group has to figure out is that you're trying to be incredibly serious for obvious reasons about the player safety, player health, coaches, staff, all of the above. But then inevitably, once they started sharing details with the players about what their daily lives would actually look like, you got pushback where they, they want to simultaneously be safe and comfortable. Those two things don't yeah. reconcile. I, I Maybe this gets aggregated, I don't know, and you might have heard something similar. From what I was told, um, the players' union agreed to it, and a lot of the players, you know, who trust the players' union to they figure didn't it out. The details. They didn't know. No. And then when the actual details came out, 100%. it was, wait a, wait a second. Wait, what? This yeah. isn't going to be, well, like, I'm not just going to be the, able to rent a house in Orlando and just commute. <laughs> yeah, like I had to, an agent tell me the, just on Friday, it was like, you know, a player wanted to rent a house for his family just outside the bubble because I think they're only letting you bring four family members in, maybe three, it, which uh, right out the gate, you know, if you're, I, I can't think of an NBA player you know, with a, a kind of a nuclear family larger than that, but I'm, they exist. And so that person, like, what are you leaving a couple of kids with you know, grandma and grandpa? Like, how do you do that? And so they wanted to rent a house and then be able to 
go see their family and come and go. And that's not the case. If you come back in, you got to quarantine. And so the details, uh, communication from the union has been a major issue that has led to this. And, and it's a little bit, for me, of a, a flashback to the 2010-11 lockout. And th- these same themes existed then. It was Derek Fisher back then as the playing the Chris Paul role as president of the players union. It was players beneath them being frustrated because they, I mean, there's, there's kind of growing, uh, I guess, noise about, you know, are, are the, the guys at the top truly representing all of us? Are they looking out for us? Uh, why didn't we get to vote in a more formal uh, way uh, instead of team reps to, to actually have a vote across the league? Um, and so, yeah, I, I don't know where it's going to go, um, but I'm going to, I'm going to push it this way to, to intersect with the book a little bit. Your book captures uh, a lot about player egos and the fact that, you know, that, that all these guys that were on the Warriors, incredibly talented players, that in a static environment, uh, you know, if you were playing this thing out on NBA 2K, should have been able to win championships for, for 10 years. But then uh, just the, the, the souls and the egos and the personalities are what ultimately, you know, drove it down the road that it went down and and you're seeing that with the league right now. I mean, Kyrie Irving is a is a in my opinion, I mean everybody's flawed of course at face value, but I mean Kyrie being a guy who was probably not going to play anyway, uh being the voice of this movement, I you know, I, I struggle with that a little bit. Uh and I you know, I think some people are trying to wrap their head around that. Um you and I both know that that now is the time when the way that each of these players see each other going in is going to kind of skew the way they see uh, the way each guy has an opinion here. Well, I, I think to connect it to some of the themes of the book, and this is broader in our culture, I think a lot of people are struggling with a dearth of meaning in their lives. Uh, there's been a loss of meaning and a question of, is this what it's all about to just constantly refresh your social media and get as much affirmation as you can possibly get and live in this narcissistic bubble that a lot of celebrities are living in because they are scaled up versions of ourselves with bigger platforms. And so you wonder if in the case of a Kyrie Irving right now that players are seeing what's happening out in the country, out in the world, and they might try to, even if the money is such an incentive, go in the direction of more meaning or be seeking more meaning. And that might be an unexpected dynamic in all of this. Sure. Um, I think that's, that's one of the, uh, the aspects. And if I'm thinking about other aspects that, well, the, and on the uh, flip side of that, yeah. Ethan, sorry to interrupt, but like, here's yeah. one, like, so, so LeBron being comfortable playing and basically saying like, here's my thing. That's fascinating. LeBron has already built his own ecosystem when it comes to making an off-court impact that the sense I get from him is that it's just this is not a deterrent to him because he has his school set up in Akron. He has, you know, his voting yeah. rights group that he just got off the ground with other athletes. He has all of these mechanisms already in place and has done an incredible job of of, you know, he, that ball has been rolling for him for a very long time and some of these other players are now saying, wait, I want to do more. I don't have this kind of infrastructure set up. Maybe it would require you know, a more dramatic thing like me choosing not to play. Uh, I feel like LeBron's in a little bit of a tough spot because it's not his fault that, that, you know, that the, no. the other guys haven't set this up in advance. I don't, and I don't think he should be criticized for it, though some might criticize him. Um, I mean, there's, there are a lot of things happening all at once um, in the culture. And I, I think one of the other things is that 
if the NBA does want to foreground um, the politics of the era, and maybe you're somebody who thinks that those politics are essential and very important, that's what they should do, they're going to turn off more people. I say it not to make any kind of judgment on what should or should not be done. This is just an appraisal. This is just an assessment about where people are in the country and there are are trade-offs you know if you it's nothing is for free typically you know you can't have your cake and eat it too you can't um espouse a certain politics that might be transgressive or might not be completely in line with the mainstream and then there's no negative consequence to that that's just not how life works in the nba seems to have gotten less popular over the last few years whether the political stands of its coaches and players are part of that, I think it's hard to prove, but it's at least correlated, heavily correlated. The two things are correlated. So the NBA has this other issue of just trying to keep fans involved and fans on board. And I would deliver this message because I do think the NBA writ large needs an intervention of of a kind. Um, Because there is this assumption that, oh my God, if A, they come back, America is going to thrill to it or B, if they don't come back, the absence will be something that America deeply cares about. I'm sorry to say you are in a bubble. America doesn't care. Not like it used to. Not like it used to. The ratings don't lie. You are far more niche than you are mainstream at this point, NBA. You are. That is the situation currently. You could get back to where you were. You could get back to where you were in the 90s. It's the greatest sport on earth. I love it. You love it. We chose what to do for a reason. But the NBA currently does not have the kind of cultural cachet that, say, the NFL does. It's really more like MLB, where a lot of America is looking around and they're going, well, gee, you know, I like sports on TV. But, you know, it's not like this is life or death. This is not something that I absolutely need for myself. The NBA is not there. So there are so many challenges ahead uh, for it as a sport, and then you throw in the financial aspects, and it's man. If Adam Silver hadn't lost his hair by now, he would <laughs> well, lucky him, he has. Um, yeah, and, and the ripple effect of this is going to be massive. And, I, and let's, I want to get into the book after this right now, but it's like Ethan. First of all, Austin Rivers, who coincidentally I'm looking at a computer screen that has his picture on it. Uh, Austin came out and talked about how, like, first of all, let's not look over the fact that for these players. This money that is on the line, this incredible amount of money, um, leaving that on the table is a detriment to their communities in some form or fashion. That's tough to quantify, but if you're trying to make change, um, you know, making change with your pocketbook will will and always will be, you know, the the most impactful way, and and that should matter to these players. The audience that you alluded to should matter a great deal. I, I do think that at least in part, I subscribe to the idea that. And I wrote this that it's like, listen, ESPN last week on Friday was literally showing foosball and free, <laughs> free solo, the rock climbing documentary. There is a mainstream America that is still channel flipping and that still, you know, then when they saw hoops would see, yes, a basketball game. They would also see players having thoughtful dialogue about what's happening in the country. And specifically one thing that if they play, I'm curious to see is that you know, the kneeling component during the national anthem. I'm very curious to see, would there be some of that? Because it, I'm not going to lie. It always kind of tugged at me. And, and as a white guy, it's like my, my voice doesn't matter in this front, but you know, it tugged at me that, that the league still kept its rule on the books, that it was not allowed 
to kneel during the national anthem. And, and I talked to the league about it at the time, and they essentially felt like the players trust us, and there was this implicit kind of faith that's fine, but we're you know this is now a time where we're learning that you know whether it's policy, whether it's a contract for a sports league, that stuff matters, and so those conversations would happen if you had the playoffs. So we'll yeah, see. I I, I just ahead. don't see many NBA fans really caring about players kneeling. It's just a different, it's a different cohort for NBA fans than some of the other sports. Um, I think National Journal has gone through the political affiliations of the different sports fans uh, per league. And for football, uh, it's pretty much everybody, but skewing a little bit right, a little bit Republican, at least in the latest survey data I've seen. NBA, if you're an NBA fan self-described, you're overwhelmingly likely to be voting Democrat. Um, That's just, that's just the cohort. So maybe that would be a story if the NBA relaxed those rules or if players knelt in defiance of those rules. But I just I can't see it leading to any kind of NBA fan revolt. Well, you know, although yeah. if if everything you said is true and I do agree with it, I mean, if, if they're if they're trending the wrong direction, if they're getting closer to niche than they are mainstream, then what are you trying to do? You're trying to grow. And so that, yeah. you know, from a business well, standpoint. Well, that, that issue, too, know. though, if you look at the survey data, has gone through a lot. Because at the beginning of it, I believe, at least in the survey data, I saw 72% of Americans were against what Colin Kaepernick was doing. And it was felt across the board. But eventually, the conversation shifts. And if you remember, a lot of that was happening in absence of Donald Trump saying anything about it. Then Donald Trump criticizes Colin Kaepernick. He's obviously a polarizing person. And so then it becomes a Republican versus Democrat issue. And now it's 50-50. So kneeling, and I think this is forgotten as people are now uh, criticizing the NFL retroactively on this matter. Um, But when the NFL did what it did, kneeling was way less popular among their fans and fans in general and I know I'm hearing what a lot of people would say. That shouldn't determine the ethics of the decision by your league. But I'm just describing the state of play, that right. the country was one way with it, one place with it. And now currently it seems like it's a coin flip and it's pretty much decided by if you vote Republican or Democrat. And in that case, it just seems like it just seems like less of a controversial issue um, if we're just looking at it. In completely bloodless terms of what what's the uh, what's the downside versus upside as a hashtag brand. Sorry right. to sound like Darren Ravel. Right, and I like Darren Ravel. That a boy, <laughs> that a boy. Do you? <laughs> I, I mean, I find him perform. I find a lot of what he does to be performance art. Sure, you know, I think he's in on it. I think he's in on what he's doing. Is what I'm saying. And when I've run into him, he's always been nice to me. I don't. Yeah, want to likewise. I shouldn't. I shouldn't do that. Being quarantined with people, you uh, you learn a lot more about them, and some of that is how they smell. And if you are a man and you're looking to smell good, you've got to check out Hawthorne. I got some of their soap, body wash, deodorant, and lotion in the mail in a package, really a beautiful package. And it is great. It got this giant bar of soap that I've been using. It not only exfoliates, but it makes your, your skin just smell and feel so good. It's easily the best soap I've ever owned. And I've owned a lot of different soaps, but this is easily the best soap. And it's a great gift for Father's Day. So they've got cologne, they have soap, 
They have all kinds of body wash and lotion and they have like hand cream and things like that. That'll just make you smell great. I think one challenge that, that men have is when you walk into a store, maybe you're going to find cologne, maybe you're going to find a good smelling soap. I don't know what I'm looking for. And I'm sure that you guys don't either. And so Hawthorne makes it super easy. You take a two minute, two minute quiz when you get onto their website, that's hawthorne.co. When you go to their website and you take the quiz and it actually asks some like random questions and some questions specific to you. And it kind of spits out this algorithm that gives you your kind of soap and your cologne scent, which is really cool. And it is so helpful to me because I don't want to have to choose that. I really don't care about choosing what it is, but Hawthorne does it for you and it does it right. So listeners, check out Hawthorne at Hawthorne.co. That's Hawthorne with an E dot C-O, not dot com, Hawthorne.co. And use the promo code down to dunk to get 10% off your first purchase. That's Hawthorne.co. And use the promo code down to dunk to get 10% off of your first purchase. Hawthorne.co. All right, uh, hard pivot. Let's talk your book, man. And I'm here's here's where I'm going to separate our conversation from the dozens of others that you have. Is that I'm going to make it very selfish and about me and through my prism of the guy who has not written a book who would like to one day, and who these questions have been bouncing around in my mind. That if I was in your shoes, uh, I would love to hear kind of the reaction for you of now having a finished product, you know, putting your hands on it. Uh, the first one is this, very simple, very basic. Are you happy with, forget reaction, were you happy with the book? I was happy with the book, but it also um, inspired a lot of stress because I ultimately made a decision to effectively make myself a character in my own book. And even though we're all a little bit narcissistic as writers, um, it almost seemed like it was too much. I did it for a reason. One of the reasons was I needed to differentiate it from the majority of the articles I was writing for The Athletic. I didn't want to rob Peter to pay Paul, as it were. And one of the ways I could do that is by having a different tone whenever I was writing the book versus when I was writing an article for us. So I found that useful. It helped me compartmentalize what I was doing, and it was necessary because otherwise – it would just all blur together and I'd get confused as to what was where. Um, But then the consequence of that uh, is that you're putting yourself out there a bit. And in some ways it also had to be because uh, Kevin Durant called me out specifically and almost made me a character in my own book in that press conference uh, back in the winter. So that's, that's also a reason why I did it. But I felt like putting myself out there it was it was scary. It was really scary. And so I think a lot of times in life, if you do the thing you're scared of, uh, it's a tremendous relief and it builds character. And so I'm just happy. I'm happy with uh, with what I wrote. I'm happy with what I tried to capture about the NBA at that time. And I'm just happy that I did something I was scared to do. Yeah. I mean, I like the fact that you made that decision because it definitely crossed my mind as I read it. There's so many parts where you you kind of bring certain stories to a halt and then it's like let me let me give you a window into my mind and what I was thinking at the time as the reporter and that I mean first and foremost it makes it original secondly you were pretty brutally honest which adds to the authenticity and then because we all kind of lived this and this is where I mean you and I have been you know you were there every day I was there a lot you know we've been kind of side by side through this warrior story um that was the part that I dug about it the most because 
I'd read your columns on The Athletic. I'd talked to you about these situations, but this was obviously a much, much deeper dive, not only into certain things that happened, but the way that you saw them. Um, but I can imagine that, you know, making your fingers cringe up a little bit as you type, that the uncomfortable element is something that you probably had to fight through. Yeah, you just don't know how things are going to be received and who's going to be mad. And you know a lot of our job is just handling the aftermath of the article and the phone calls. And that's 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 a lot of it. It's something that I know you don't like and I don't like, but it's just a necessary evil. Right. It just comes with the territory. I ultimately try to think about prioritizing the fans and the readers and trying to get them something that they usually don't get. I don't always succeed in doing it, but that's what I'm going for. And can I bring them behind the curtain? Can I tell them what it feels like to be in an NBA locker room when a very strange thing happens? Or as we've both been through getting dragged into the players lounge and what that's all about. Yes. Yes. I I assumed I told you that story at some point. And, but yeah, so in the, in the book, Ethan writes about, um, getting pulled in by Andre Iguodala after uh, Kevin's upset about stuff that Ethan wrote in the infamous press conference where he essentially kind of tried to, to sound you and treat you like a 10-year-old. Um, mm. and, and Andre was trying to tell you to apologize. My my little back-in-the-day example of that was, was Bonzi Wells of the Kings grabbing me from underneath the, the armpit when he was upset about a, a piece I wrote for the Sacramento Bee. It's not comfortable. Like, I got pulled behind the curtain i remember the the security man a guy named joe nolan nice guy but big guy and and he his job is his job he's security for an nba team and he was looking at me like yeah i was the enemy why are you here and so uh i'm sure some of those feelings were piping through your veins when that happened well i think we just have a very just a very strong sense of space when we're doing our jobs back when our jobs existed you know back when you could go to arenas um you you just have this you have this incredibly fine-tuned sense of space and where you are supposed to be and where you are not supposed to be i don't know what fans think as far as where we are or what we do or how we go i mean we never strap a gopro up to our heads and really show how it all works but there's the sense of you are in you are allowed in the locker room now Now you get out. You are not allowed in the locker room. You are allowed in this hallway. You are not allowed in that hallway. You will get yelled at if you are in the old Oracle uh, family room hallway that's outside of the family room. So um, when you are suddenly taken from a place where it's been hammered into you that you are allowed to be and into a place where you're not allowed to be, uh, it it can be quite disconcerting. What I've always loved about our, our friend and colleague Marcus Thompson, though, He's always regarded those rules as blurrier than everybody else. And he clearly demonstrates that rules often are just people. And you can flout them if you have enough charm, if you have enough daring, if you can convince certain people uh, to let you do it. Uh, He's always had an immense talent for doing that. Um, But, yeah, I think I I just wanted to give I wanted to give fans and readers a sense of not only not only the NBA underbelly, but. Insofar as they were curious about it, what it's like to do the media job and what that's like, because we get emails sometimes. People do want to know. Yeah, uh, they they like that look, and so I figured it was uh, it was nice to give them that. I mean, that component was really strong. I loved. Um, I mean, he, he's what's funny. You'll you'll laugh about the way I read the book. I was guilty when I uh, when I first dived in 
of, and, and this is not typically how I would read, Ethan, I, I cheated and I skipped to the Durant chapter. <laughs> That's fine. And I got about halfway through the Durant chapter and then the guilt overwhelmed me and I went back to the beginning. So you... Well, it's a, that's a, by the way, that's a polarizing chapter. I, I hear one of two things. I hear either that's people's favorite chapter or they have some sort of issue with that chapter. I, I hear that more from hardcore Warriors fans because the relationship with him is complicated in this particular region where a lot of people are saying, why is he on the cover of the book? It should be Steph. It should be Steph. Now, for the t- kind of book it is, I mean, it should be Durant. I mean, right. he symbolizes the modern NBA superstar and their discontent better than anybody outside of perhaps the aforementioned Kyrie Irving, who's on the same level. Um, but that chapter in particular seems to people either love it or hate it. Uh, in my in my experience, I don't. I don't know. I mean, that's the part where I've lost my fandom because it doesn't to me matter if you love it or hate it. It's it's what happened, you know. Yeah. Um, and so I yeah. liked the way you portrayed it. But then Kevin, he's on the cover. But this book is not just about Kevin. The way that you flow through, essentially like long extended character profiles of people like Bob Myers and Steve Kerr and even the, you know, the, the supporting characters like a, a Kirk Lakeup and people like that, you know, even insight from someone like Larry Harris, which I thought was good. Um, again, for me, someone who knows these people really, really well, uh, learning new things and, and Bob in particular, you know, you got this GM as you captured that technically speaking was on the books when this thing was constructed, at least in its, at its height, you know, he came along after Steph, certainly, and Clay, but um, but but he helped put this team together, and the credit didn't come his way. And he is a humble guy in the way he speaks, in the way that he moves. But then one part that I loved the the fellow reporter in me is that you get to some truths that that we have not really found a way to share publicly until this point, which is on Bob's front that there has been this thing for a while that Bob's never going to be the type of guy that you know publicly puts his hand up and says, "What about me?" But there has been that component internally, and and you have a hard-driving owner like Joe Lacob, who is not the easiest to work with all the time. And so, again, honest truths that, you know, I'm sure Bob probably gave you a shout after the book to say, you know, why are you trying to jam me and Joe up? There's something of that nature. But, <laughs> but I mean, that stuff is real, and uh, and I'm a sucker for, I mean, it goes back to my Bonzi Well story. Bonzi was mad at me because I wrote some stuff that was true, and people we covered don't want the truth to, to be shared with the public, but that, that is our job. Yeah. It's, it's a tricky dynamic and GMs are often paid less than the coaches. Uh, and they're the boss of the coaches effectively. And the point made by a GM to me that everybody thinks you can win a championship with a bad coach. I mean, if you just have superior talent, um, nobody thinks that a great coach can win a championship with a bad roster. Right. So why is the coach, why is the coach paid more than the GM? Now, there are reasons for that. Um, but if you're a GM, it's going to add to your angst, knowing that you have so much power and so much influence and you put out fires all day, but the credit is going to go to maybe eight different people before it arrives at your doorstep. So um, it's not a job that typically makes people happy. Daryl Morey was a little bit different, though. I mean, Daryl, I I, <laughs> I think Daryl legitimately enjoys being a GM. I think he actually sure. yeah. he actually likes it. Or at well, least when I talked to him about it, he he was saying, "Look, man, I could have been digging ditches." I don't. And then he went on this whole aside of, "Why do we say digging ditches?" <laughs> 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 uh, that's funny. That actually reminds me. This is a, a 
total aside. Uh, yeah, I watched this Michael Shea stand-up comedy thing on Netflix last night, and he had me dying because he he honed in on the the phrase uh, "screwed the pooch" and how it was it was <laughs> something that white people came up with that made no sense. It was really uncomfortable. Um, yeah, <laughs> I've but, never thought about the etymology of that. <laughs> yes, yes, but. Um, the my other favorite part of the book, and and I'm just going to lean in since you listen since you grabbed the microphone in your book sure. and you gave a lot of first person. I'm going to in that same uh, that same kind of theme. Um, I smiled broadly when I read about Steve Kerr uh, getting upset as he read a story on the Milwaukee Bucks and how they played with joy, and mm-hmm. how he and how he threw. Oh, his who phone. who wrote that story? Who yeah, wrote that story? Yeah, I uh, wonder who wrote that story. I might have gotten a text message that night. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, that's, and that captures it because I, and that was, again, the truths of it. Steve Kerr, uh, it just, you know, was the, to me, the number one person when it comes to building. Well, I mean, it's Steve and Steph. Steph, Steph is a joyful, inclusive personality and a person. Um, Steve combined with Steph leads to this culture that before Kevin arrived was, so powerful and so unique that it attracted somebody like Kevin. And they knew that as you wrote, they knew that in OKC, he was tired, not only of the style of play, but the, the, the collective mood and the way that they operated more like a, you know, San Antonio Spurs military type style, as opposed to, uh, you know, kind of a, a almost a hippie-ish sixties. We all love each other. Let's play the game the right way type thing. Um, and that changed over time. And Steve was frustrated, and you see that evolution, um, which leads to some, you know, another question that I wanted your take on is the the age old could they have done anything differently? Do you think this story was going down this road no matter what? Um, when it comes to not only keeping this group of players together and winning championships, but keeping you know, like bringing Kevin in in the kind of way that would have truly made him feel like he was part of the program in ways that he obviously doesn't think he was and that led to his exit. It's funny because on a personal level, I believe in prioritizing an internal locus of control over an external locus of control. I believe in looking at any situation that did not go well for myself and going, I screwed up. What can I do better? How do I improve? And yet when I look at this particular situation, I look at the Warriors as just trying to fight nature trying to fight the weather that there wasn't much they could do that these are powerful forces unleashed in the culture through social media that make it very hard for certain personality types to find fulfillment and there's just not a lot that you can do that if the surrounding conversation is not validating kevin to the degree that he imagined it would Um, there isn't much the Warriors can do to suddenly make this all have been so fulfilling to him. I just don't see it. I don't see how it's possible. Maybe they could have unleashed an incredible media strategy and they could have had plants all around uh, ESPN and there would have been so much obsequious praise that it would have floated the experiment a few years forward. But I I just don't see it. I think they got what they got out of it and it was a pretty good run, and they almost won three in a row, but for the injuries. And so I just don't have that much criticism. Things end. Things have a shelf life. The story had run out on the Warriors. It had run out, and I say the story had run out in a way because I'm almost insinuating that 
it's the story. It's not anything anybody can do. It's not anything anybody could save. It's just the narrative of it ended. And that was that. Right. Right. You know, for me, I go back to the Hamptons and, and even as a life lesson, it makes me think that, all right, in, in anything in life, if you're sitting across the table from somebody and, and, and you are utterly confounded and confused about why they would want to do the type of thing that you're asking them to do, even if they say yes, you, you know, if you want it to be a healthy dynamic, you, you probably should listen to that voice in your head. And, and what I'm talking about is, in the Hamptons, when they were whining and dining Kevin in free agency in summer 2016, Rich Kleiman, Kevin's agent, and Rich looked across the table at Steph Curry and, and essentially said, why? Like, why would you welcome somebody into your circle who is going to take a, a lot of your shine uh, after the couple of years that Steph had had? You were on top of the world. And, and you also, this was really great nuanced stuff where you wrote about Steph and the idea that it's easy for us to say, why would you want that sort of a, a dominant run to come to an end? Well, it came at a cost. It came at a cost on his family, his time, um, and that seems to have been very exhausting to him. And so that's the part we probably overlooked during this whole situation mm -hmm. is that maybe Steph, you know, that just simply wasn't what he valued was continued dominance. Maybe he wanted to take a breath after those couple of years. And only he really knows how he saw that. But I just go back to the Hamptons when they, they asked Steph, like, are you sure? Are you really sure you want this? And, and of course, you know, because it's who he's chosen to be as a person, he says, yes, let's do it. But then in the end, you know, Kevin didn't, he didn't get enough of the shine uh, to, to, to kind of satiate his own soul. And, and I think that's why it went where it went. Yeah. You didn't, you didn't get enough. And I think the Warriors, you convince yourself of a certain narrative in order to get what you want. The Warriors convince themselves that the problem in Oklahoma City, vis-a-vis -vis Kevin, the culture was too restrictive. Russell Westbrook was too selfish. They really built Russell Westbrook up as this oh, yeah. guy who screwed everything up and we're going to treat him so much better and he's going to learn the kumbaya basketball that we play and it's going to show him new possibilities and for a while, sure. For a while, sure. It was a pretty happy season, that first season, that they all played together. Uh, but they ended up learning, I think, in the end, that the issues that Kevin had in Oklahoma City weren't just Oklahoma City's fault. That there was fault on both sides in that dynamic. Um, and ultimately, they saw some of the patterns probably that got set out there get set in the Bay Area and maybe even more so. Yeah, and I, I, I don't know how you feel. I truly, as somebody who's covered him for a very long time and at different times felt like we had a, a pretty good relationship and then at other times, just being honest, like was confused and even frustrated as to the way he would move, um, never more so than the finals last year when he just you couldn't get a beat on him and where his head was at. And I'm talking about before the final injury uh, as he was making yep. his way back. Um, it's, you know, he, he's just a, he's a very complicated person, which goes for everyone, but to, you know, for him and his evolution to happen on this type of a grand stage, you know, for these past few years, it's, it's been tough to, to get the GPS on Kevin. And I still don't have a sense of, I mean, I, I could not tell you at all what the Brooklyn chapter might look like. Um, no. and whether, and I, and I, it's be clear. I have sympathy. I mean, not that anybody cares if I have sympathy, but I think. 
maybe because of the the press conference, maybe because of the way the excerpts have been covered, there's this assumption some have. There's a there's like the big time NBA reporter in Spain. I was told has this assumption about it that it's all about killing Kevin, killing Kevin, killing Kevin. I, I've got sympathy. I think that if Kevin played in the 1990s, his problems would not would not be so pressing. I really believe that. I believe we're going through a technology problem. Sure. I believe that our brains are not built to deal with what famous people are dealing with. And they're not going to get a lot of sympathy because much of the public goes, well, I would like to be rich and famous. I don't care. But you see this. I see this all the time. Our celebrities have never been crazier. I watch the Taylor Swift documentary um, that's on Netflix, and you can see that she is psychologically crumbling under the weight of the social media coverage and what she's not doing right, what she is doing right. And I just think that there are, are personality types that would have been fine in another era, but when you match them up against this era and how they receive the information, the feedback about what they're doing, it becomes miserable to handle. And I think that Kevin is one of those guys. I don't think he's a bad guy. I don't think you think that either. I don't think the Warriors think that. I just think he's especially tortured by what the technology does to people's brains right now. I think the irony of it all is that Kevin is generally considered an incredibly likable, good soul when he's in a good place. And what confused people these past couple of years and not to sound melodramatic, I'm gonna sound like I'm in my feelings. Like, listen, I just I missed a guy that that would that would smile more in the public, you know, sector. And and when he's in a good place, uh, you know, he's. I mean, forget about his incredible basketball talent. Oh, he's just, he's a very charming guy. Yeah. When he's in a good space, he's very charming and fun to talk to, and open in a way that is uncommon among players. Right. And will give you. I think as I wrote in the book, I mean, he'll just give you takes on everything. He could do a great drive time radio show on on sports and people people miss that. And they saw enough of it to where even though the other guy kept showing up, there was this understanding of, well, he's also this really likable dude whom we miss and we're more concerned with him than we are mad at him. Well, and as you know, that that was always his trigger is if you explore in, in, in your coverage anything remotely close to trying to assess his emotional state, then you would hear from him. I mean, that's just what would happen. Yeah. Because uh, yeah. he, he takes exception to the idea that the media has the freedom to analyze where a certain public figure's state of mind might be. And he's just well, not comfortable I mean, with that. It's, it's interesting. He almost, because basketball has solved so many of his problems because he's so incredible at it. Um, there's a purity, there's a righteousness to his belief that, okay, well, this should settle everything. This should settle everything. Right. I, I'm going to do what I need to do out there on the court, and everybody's gonna have to shut up. Everyone's gonna have to, everyone's gonna have to understand because that particular truth right. was decided, and it doesn't work like that. He's Don Quixote. You know, this is not this is not how it actually goes, and it's a little more political than that. And this idea that okay, I'm going to win the championship. I'm going to get finals MVP. I'm going to be dominant. I'm going to crush LeBron James. And the next day, all these media people, I've been ripping. I've been jumping in their DMs. I've been demeaning are going to herald me 
as the greatest player. Right. But life doesn't totally work that way. <laughs> right. No, and you hit the nail on the head with that in the book, too. I mean, the stuff about him wanting to be seen as the best player in the game is very real. And Lee Jenkins, of course, back in the day for Sports Illustrated, had written you know, about his kind of you know, tortured plight as number two and how he didn't want to be number two anymore. And it didn't go the way he wanted. Um, within that, it's it's been so interesting to me to, to see him try to figure out the media. There was a time in the beginning, okay, he's he's protected by a, an OKC culture that, that for the most part is pretty restrictive. Um, and, and so you had that chapter. Then with the Warriors early on, and you remember these days, and this is where, where he confused me and kind of lost me, is there was a time for quite a while where he would, you know, practice his shoot-arounds, games, all of it. He would express uh, a sense of appreciation for the media that was there every day that would try to learn about these players. And rather than firing off hot takes from, you know, the, the ESPN studio or any, you know, Fox Sports studio, they were there. And they were learning about these people. We were learning about these people as human beings. I remember he told me that one time in San Antonio. It was at a shoot-around during the playoffs where uh, he was frustrated about something that Stephen A. had said. And but that that <laughs> that feeling ultimately disappeared. And next thing you know, now it's the people around him that he uh, he was upset with the way they well, were doing their jobs. And and functionally, he was a great teacher of the game and generous with his time of that way. I always enjoyed. I don't know if you ever caught him and Nate Duncan going back and forth because Nate has such a granular level of focus on players and their moves and who does what. And it was just so much fun to watch to watch KD explaining, okay, here's what the scouting report is on LaMarcus Aldridge. Uh, you know, here's what you got to watch out for. He does this, 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 and then boom, you got to watch out for that. He would go through all of that stuff. So uh, he he's somebody where if he's in the right place, again, if he's in the right place, um, it, it's ironic that his dynamic with the media is so toxic at this point because he really is a media person's dream when he's, when he's in the right frame of mind. Right, right. Um, kudos to you too, Ethan, on the fact that reporting-wise, I, I cannot. If I wrote a book like this, my the thing that would keep me up at night is is having one part of the narrative where I just dropped the ball and I left something out, uh, a subplot, a key turn of events, and the one, uh, just being honest, that I was watching with a kind of a real close eye was the that I thought you might ultimately either choose to jump over or just you know it, it wasn't the loudest of stories but like the finals last year and the uncomfortable discussion about how before he gets hurt at the end that that there was that growing sense of of frustration within the locker room and confusion really is the word yeah about why he hadn't come back sooner and that was you know during this time when the, the warriors tried their best to to quell that narrative and to tell us I you know know what's funny I I think I should have captured some of those dynamics a little bit I don't know a little bit better or because you're you're always going to have these regrets about oh I should have done this or I should have done that Uh, but I did think there was something that I maybe should have captured that was difficult to capture which was I felt that the Warriors players were doing a lot of grumbling and questioning and then when he got hurt they took they almost did an act of projection yeah, where they started 100%. lashing out at everybody who was questioning and everybody who had any and doubt. Bob 
was number one. I mean, that yes. Bob's press conference that, that leads your that leads your House of Strauss podcast yeah, on the intro yeah. is and, and Demarcus Cousins, and it was just and it, it was this thought in my head around that time where it's and I don't want to blame them either because I think what happened was a breakdown in communication. They didn't know what he was up to. They didn't right. know how hurt he was. They had right. no idea. But then then once he gets hurt in that grotesque way, it becomes all about the evil media and fans and wait, wait a second you I guys were there all- were some people in that room feeling guilty i guarantee you yes you know yes that's the thing because it speaks a transference. well and it speaks to, it's anything this is not hoops this is life like if if you and i don't talk for six months and 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 then my reaction to that six months from now is just like yeah i don't know i wasn't ever really sure about that ethan guy anyway like that speaks to where i was to begin with um, and, and it yeah. kind of exposes it. Now, if I was like, no, I, I should call Ethan. It's been too long. You know, that's where, when you didn't have the communication in that locker room about what was going on with him, the fact that some of their minds went to cynicism and frustration, it kind of it tells you the state of yeah. the relationship. And it, that's where once you read your book and you're sitting there going, okay, this tension had been there all season long and even before then. And so nobody should be surprised that at the end, they just they couldn't get a read on, on where his head was at. Yeah, and it's it's complicated. I'm not trying to, it, for the most part in the book, blame any particular side. I think it was a situation where Kevin had become a bubble into himself, and so when he wasn't coming back to play in that playoffs, uh, it wasn't like his teammates knew that he was legitimately that injured i mean they couldn't they couldn't they couldn't know one way or the other there was no way for them to know there was no way for them to know until his achilles ripped really i mean that 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 was okay well well okay now that's fairly obvious but you know if you are if you're completely cut off from the communication um you're not going to know and then you're going to make certain assumptions and that that makes a lot of sense i'm not blaming either party i think that they they basically went through a slow divorce um, over the course of that season, a little bit in the season before it. And how are you really going to know what's going on with the other party in that situation? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, listen, since then you've seen the, uh, I don't know, I don't want to say the gloves come off, but it's just the unfiltered part. I mean, Draymond more than anybody has, has done so many interviews where all of these things that at the time when, when you and I and others reported them, that, that everybody screamed to the heavens that, that we were off and we were wrong. All of a sudden, you know, Draymond grabs that mic. Yeah. And, and Well, that's that's our particular plight of people don't double back and go, oh, okay, you know, I see. Yeah, 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 you you were correct about that. But right. yes, sorry, I, I jumped in. That's our selfish social media narcissism, baby. And you just have to live, you have to live with that aspect. You don't want to be wrong because being wrong is going to echo for a lot louder and longer um, than than being right is but i did i did have the feeling when draymond was saying what he was saying i did have the feeling of hi huh, i remember somebody reporting all this <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh and it doesn't it crazy doesn't it feel like it was just a lifetime ago i mean we're talking about it it was a year i think it's about three days ago um was the anniversary yeah. of the raptors championship uh today facebook reminded me that three years ago i was uh, on this day in 2017 i was at a warriors championship parade how are you holding up when it comes to this the surrealness of of, of our livelihoods and, and our rhythms and our routines being upended and, and now all of this stuff just seems like a like it was a, in a different time. 
in a way, the mask feels like a metaphor because it feels like life is being lived through a mask where when I wear a mask outside, if I wear it to get my groceries, it feels like, yeah, I'm living life, but not quite, you know, like I'm living life, but it's uncomfortable. I'm not getting all of the air that I want to get. Um, I'm agitated. And in many ways, that seems what life in the pandemic is. You know, sometimes you look outside, it seems pretty normal and the birds are chirping and the sun is out. Um, it's good weather right now. Um, but then you remember, you always remember like, ah, I can't do that. Or can I do that? Is right. that possible? Right. Or is, wait, is that place closed? You know, like what is it? And so um, and in, in addition with our jobs where look, I'll be I'll be honest, I cannot say what the players should or shouldn't do when it comes to their goals. But yeah, I want basketball. Yeah. I want a tournament, a bubble, even if I don't think that it is an NBA championship, like NBA championships typically are, are one. I, I just want to see it. I want it to come back. Um, because I, I miss what we do. I really do. I miss a lot of the culture that's captured in the book. It's already a nostalgic artifact and not just because the warriors presently with the money they're leaking i mean rome is in ruins right now right uh, I, I don't even know if that's an exaggeration to say uh last place bleeding money victims of their own ambition i mean that would be the epilogue um of of the book if i were writing one i am writing one by the way nice there you go <laughs> I, you got to do something for the paperback but you know uh the warriors in a poetic justice kind of way their big ambitious get of Oracle Arena exit into the stadium in San Francisco has created a financial issue for them in the pandemic that nobody could have foreseen. But um, I, yeah, I miss it. I miss those. I miss, I miss hanging out at the loading dock and shooting the shit with people in the league and people from the sneaker industry and coaches and scouts and players. And and are you with me in the stuff? fact that it's just not, it's just not the same. I mean, I, I've no. had a guilty conscience at different times during, you know, <clears throat> excuse me, this time at home where you're always working the phones, right? And you're always calling people, but selfishly it's not, it's just not as enjoyable when no. you're calling this executive or this agent or this player, whatever it is. And you talk to them it's not as enjoyable. I will say the one of my favorite conversations in true form was catching up with Ron Adams uh, a couple of weeks ago. The, the you know the beloved Warriors assistant. That was a life conversation. That was fulfilling and substantive. But Sam, talking, you nope. need to get your shit together. <laughs> yes, and what did he, what did Ron say in the book about about your son? I forget. Oh, he, that, yeah. that he's got a better attitude than I do. Yeah. I, I, what I love. Okay, so here's a, here's a Ron Adams story. Um, I was doing TV for ESPN back in the day, back when I didn't know I I disliked it doing those stand ups in the suit yep. and whatnot. Yeah. Um, and so. I didn't like putting on the full suit. Suits are uncomfortable. And at these shoot arounds at these practices, I would often just show up with the top of the suit with the jacket and I would just wear sweats under it <laughs> because it's all artifice. It's TV. And you never NBA players are so strange. You just never know what they fixate on. This drove the Warriors players crazy. Just it, it was like the visual equivalent of having a kernel of popcorn stuck in your teeth. You know, Festus Azili would just come up and he goes, just ah. Like complete the outfit. He's just <laughs> mad about it. And, but I kept doing it because I thought it was funny. To I remember with them, but, walking by you in the hallway and seeing that. Yeah, I remember that. But 
But one day Ron Adams came up to me and he just looks at me so gravely and he says to me, every man has a choice to make in his life. Is he going to dress for his job looking like a man of respect, a man ready to contribute to the world? Or is he going to look like a fucking slob? <laughs> I would hate for you to make the wrong choice. <laughs> and that was the last time I wore sweats with a suit. Uh, for a good, great Ron Adams story. Also great Barack Obama impersonation. That was, I guess, know. I mean, is that a, <laughs> does he speak with that case? I mean, that's how Ron sounds like in my head. I can't vouch, uh, I can't vouch for every imitation I do, especially I did on the audio book. I think I imitated some people. Oh, God, man, I love you, but I'm not listening to the audio book. I don't know if I could. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to hear uh, the different imitations? You actually, I, I might need to. Imitation? Yeah, I think I do need to just to, to hear because you, you're such a smart ass and, and you're proud of it that I'm like, I'm going to listen to the the the, the, the to know you know what ironically i don't know if i imitated ritter uh i don't know if i did just because <laughs> how could the reader possibly possibly know of oh, the raymond man. ritter imitation which is really an imitation of david lee's imitation of raymond but yes fair all right listen uh we're coming up against our andrew select uh, determined time that that you know podcast experts say we should wrap it up uh you're a good man good job on the book uh great job on the book it was really uh, deep Thorough, fun at different times. Fun's a weird word to put on it, but I did enjoy going through the joyride and, and, and the ups and the downs. Um, and it's not easy to do a book on something where there have been multiple books done. You know what I mean? And, and specifically our, our friend and colleague, Marcus Thompson, with his books on Steph and Kevin, you know, this was a different tilt. This was a different angle. This was um, This was trying to understand uh, an incredibly fascinating, complicated uh, interesting team. So great job. You should feel good about it. Listeners, if you haven't picked it up yet, make sure you do the victory machine, the making and unmaking of the Warriors dynasty. Ethan Sherwood Strauss, um, love also, by the way, that you didn't smile in your picture. That was very, very perfect. <laughs> my wife, my wife was mad about that. She wanted the one where I smiled. So <laughs> it's weird. Cause I know you, you know what it made me think of when I was a kid and you would read yeah. books that had pictures from authors like this. I'm just gonna be on. I would I would see a picture like that and just be like, "What is wrong with that person?" <laughs> <laughs> well, what's wrong with that person is that I, I I'm a terrible fake smiler. It looks creepy. It's yeah. a rictus grin. No, that's it's fair. awful. That's but fair. Thank you for the nice words. This is very enjoyable. Um, and you know, don't don't listen to Sam. The audiobook's good. You can hear a Jerry <laughs> Sorry. West imitation. I didn't help the marketing there. Yeah, you can, you can hear me imitate Jerry West. See see how you like it. All right, yeah. Just promise a lot of impersonations. I'm sure that's going to help your sourcing <laughs> going forward. <laughs> All right, brother. Thanks, Thanks Ethan. Appreciate Thanks, you. Yeah.